0: Animal welfare sounds straightforward, doesn't it? The truth is measuring and understanding welfare is complex, which makes establishing and agreeing on standards difficult. This is clear in the egg market in Canada where we've seen an evolution in the standards. We saw some organizations, including the retail council of Canada commit to quote unquote cage free systems while others committed to moving to a new national code of practice, which allows either open housing or enriched housing. In fact, the Retail Council of Canada recently rescinded the cage-free commitment and moved to being consistent with the National Code of Practice. What does it all mean and what should you be looking for in the grocery store? Sorting that out isn't easy. My name is Mike Masso and this is the Food Focus Podcast. a sort of welfare in laying hens is Dr. Tina Wodowski, a professor in the Department of Animal Biosciences at the University of Guelph and former director of the Campbell Center for the Study of Animal Welfare. She helps us understand some of the challenges in measuring welfare and setting standards. I'm sure you will find it as interesting as I did. Well, hi, Tina. Thanks for taking the time to have a quick chat. Hi, Mike. Great to be here. Thank you. So Tina, I wanted to, you're the the person I've learned the most about uh, animal welfare from in life. So I wanted to come back to you and I know you're kind of, uh, you've done a lot of work in layers. Uh, We hear a lot about welfare in laying hens. You know, we hear battery cages, we hear enriched colonies or enriched cages, we hear cage-free and all of these things. But before we get to sort of some of the differences between those systems, how can we tell, like, how do we define welfare in laying hens? What is good welfare and, and, and how can we tell?
1: Well, animal welfare assessment's a little bit tricky because it really boils down to kind of ethical decisions about how people feel about quality of life, right? And so what kind of measures can we come up to, you know, uh, assess the quality of life of a laying hen? And, um... Uh, like, like with all animals, there's a, a whole cocktail of different measures that we use. And one of the challenges is that different people put different values on, on different types of measures. So if we look at a, you know, a marathon runner versus a couch potato, what they value in terms of quality of life are quite different. Yeah. So when it comes to animal welfare assessment, there's kind of three broad categories of, of measures that we use one is referred to as like health uh, or biological function and this has to do with it, how if the animal is healthy if it's you know producing reproducing thriving free of physiological disruptions we say like no stress response and those sorts of things and so this set of category or this category of measures that we use, is, is really a lot of value from veterinarians and farmers. Traditionally, farmers have put a lot of value on this measure. Yeah. And then a second category of uh, measures that we use has to do with the way animals feel. It's all about feelings. And we know that animals, at least the higher vertebrates, like birds and mammals, share a lot of the same emotions that we have. And so things like pain and fear frustration. Animals have those as well because those help in survival in the natural environment. And we've gotten pretty good at measuring those. And now we're also talking more and more about pleasurable states as well. And so this category of measures or feelings really is animal welfare scientists and animal behaviors put a lot of value on this sort of measure. And then there's a, a third category of perspective, and that has to do with natural living. Or is the animal in a situation or an environment that matches its nature very well so can a chicken do what chickens are built to do and sort of more the natural environment and and this perspective is one that's really um, embraced more by the general public or the broader community it's harder to put measures on other than you know do they see the sun can they go outside can they build a nest and those sorts of things and so unfortunately not one of those not one of those measures is definitive but really you have to kind of in, when assessing welfare take into account all of those different perspectives
0: yeah so so it's a challenge and different just i i i was going to use the exact same example as you as is as, as what makes you happy is different from what makes me happy and and so any of these measures are relatively subjective before we get into some of the housing systems i'm intrigued How can you tell or how do you measure if a chicken is frustrated or if a chicken is happy? How do you sort of as a scientist evaluate that?
1: Well, well, pain and fear are probably easiest. We've studied those the most and we know that different species have different signals that they give when they're in pain and fear and we and through laboratory experiments, we validate what you know, vocalizations they do, what kind of postures they would use if if they're afraid or feeling pain. Frustration is another one similar to that, in that if an animal is pacing or um, may may exhibit certain behavior patterns that are evident of frustration. Um, But another set of tools that we use in animal welfare science is we ask animals what they value. And so by setting up standardized tests, we can ask a laying hen, and this has been done numerous times, is a nest important to you? So every day before a, the hen lays an egg, she goes through this pre-laying behavior so that the egg's going to come and she starts to look for a nest. Scientists have done laboratory experiments where we then say, okay, is a nest important to you? And if it is, will you work for it? So this is a notion that animals will work to avoid what they want and they will work to get away from what is aversive to them. And so Mm -hmm. we set up these standardized tests. And so we know that certain behavior patterns are really important for hens and nesting is one of them. She will push through heavy weighted doors, squeeze through little narrow gaps in order to get to a nest during her pre-laying stage. And so these types of tests have been done for different sorts of behavior patterns. So we know what the hen values in her environment.
0: So so we've learned a lot uh, about hens and about and as you say we've asked hens you know yeah. what what do you value and so that's allowed us to to understand behavior better and you know that's the kind of work you and and a bunch of people at the University of Guelph do and and so that gets us to the discussion of housing and enhancements or enrichments to housing and so we've seen a move away in europe first and in canada too away from sort of the traditional quote-unquote battery cages which had you know not a lot of space to enriched houses or enriched colonies which as i understand it have larger numbers of chickens but not completely open and then aviaries or free right. uh, I always get free run and free uh, range, free range, free run run is open in a barn and free range is access to the outdoors, right? Correct. So, so we've got all of these things and we're, we're wrestling with what the appropriate approach is to, to give us acceptable levels of, uh, of welfare. I think we can say definitively that enriched housing and free run are better than battery cages, but there's still lots of debate around the other two. Can we objectively say one is better than the other?
1: Well, a lot of the contention around this is that when I talked about the different measures in terms of health and feelings and natural living, those indicators don't all point in the same direction depending on which housing system we're talking about. So in a free run system or aviary systems, there is more behavioral freedom. Hens get access to nests and perches. There's litter on the ground, but they're also still kept in a group of thousands. And so there's a higher risk of mortality, a higher risk of some behavior problems. Just, you know, living outdoors or, well, they're not outdoors, but living in a more complex environment, you're a greater risk for health and injury. Sometimes in these systems, we see higher mortality, higher health problems, higher rates of injuries. In enriched colonies, not only do the hens have more space and are in larger groups, but they're also provided nests, perches, and a scratch mat. So remember I said, we we, for 50 years, we've done all these tests on what hens value. um, And we know those are some of the important behaviors. So foraging is important. Perching is important. Nesting is important. So those enriched colonies have the resources that support those, what we know are important behaviors. They also have a lot of the health and hygiene benefits of the the old conventional battery cage. Hens, low mortality in battery cages, very healthy. Hens are separated from their manure. And so the enriched colonies try and capture the, the benefits of the Battery cages, but also provide for some of those important behaviors. And so, the birds in an enriched colony don't have the full amount of freedom in a free run system. However, they're also at less risk of some of the health and and mortality problems in those as well.
0: So, 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 so there are clear trade offs. We can't absolutely. say def- we can't say definitively this one is better than that one. We can probably say definitively. Both of them are better than historical battery cages, and and moving to either of those systems was was real progress. But we, we saw in Canada a few years ago a rush to cage-free, probably not with a significant discussion of, sci- of the science, but mostly, and, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth, my perception was mostly... Uh, uh, a run away from the word cage and we probably shouldn't have said enriched cage we should although they are enclosures okay. we should have maybe said enriched housing. Uh, and we've seen sort of a bounce back from that where for example, the retail Council of Canada came out and said, well, you know we said we were going to go cage free. We think now that there's some merit to enriched. Uh, enriched housing and so we think that we should be able to sell eggs from both types of housing and it's clear that that's not unique to the egg market you know we're seeing all sorts of different priorities from consumers in other markets And you go to a grocery store nowadays you can see 14 15 16 different skews of of eggs Uh, we see the retail council do you think that in your view that both systems have individual merits and and trade offs that merit consideration, and that we shouldn't pick one or the over the other. Uh,
1: yes, and well, part of the Retail Council of Canada's decision, re- recent decision, actually has to do with standing by what the code of pra- the Canadian code of practice um, is allowing. Okay, so. Mm-hmm. Um, Our codes of practice in Canada are really unique. We have a very unique system for setting up standards for farm animals, and that it's multi-stakeholder and and science-informed. So our codes of practice, there's a scientist committee that reviews the literature, provides that information to the code development committee, and sitting on the code development committee are all different voices. So there's farmers, government, retail council sat at that table as well. Um, and also the um, Canadian Federation of Humane Societies. So there's a whole variety of voices at that, and they take both the scientific information, but the other considerations that have to do with ethical decision-making on farming, which is also economics. Can the farmers make a living? Can people afford it? And those sorts of things. And by consensus, determine what will be acceptable For farming practices in Canada. And so retail council went back to say, we're going to abide by the National Farm Animal Council code of practice. Individual grocery stores still may have pledges that they are going to um, try and put in place within the next few years.
0: So, so so we've got decisions that individual consumers make. Uh, we have decisions that individual food service companies make. Uh, we, we have uh, individ- stores that can make commitments. But within the context of the broader the, the broader production environment, we have a set of codes of practice that say, this is how, Are they binding codes of practice? This is how chickens need to be raised? Is is it law or are these guidelines or how does that work?
1: Um, It's it's kind of funny in Canada because in some provinces, the codes of practice are written into the animal welfare legislation, but not in all the provinces. Um, However, they are considered the national understanding of minimum standards for the care of animals. So if there is a question about, cruelty or um, something like that. The enforcement body, whoever that may be in whatever particular province, uses the code of practice as the the minimum standard for what's considered acceptable. But also in the, the supply managed, um, there is the expectation. So the supply managed industries like poultry, eggs, dairy, there is the expectation that all producers will meet those codes and they are audited regularly to ensure that they are.
0: Yeah. So, so it's part of having quota is, is you have to meet these standards and, and there are, like, like you say, there are audits regularly to, to ensure that, that, that farmers are meeting these standards. And so the code sets a national acceptable standard of, of welfare based on, as you said, a scientific recommendation and then consensus in the room and, and then individual companies can produce eggs with a variety of different welfare characteristics, you know, free range, free run, minimum of enriched, all, all of those sorts of things that may appeal to specific individual consumers as long as we're all meeting the minimum standard. Correct. Yeah. So so in in your view you talked about the the code uh, approach that we have in Canada as being relatively unique. Unique can be positive and negative. Am I to interpret sort of infer from what you're saying that you think that approach works relatively well for 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 ensuring animal welfare in Canada?
1: Absolutely because I think it Includes all different voices. There's also a period of public comment when the code drafts come out, the people can write in. Yeah. And so, um, so and and that is highly unusual when legislation or guidelines are set in other places, you know, state by state legislation in the U S now a number of states have, have um, different ballot initiatives and referendum, the language, always appears different. It's not necessarily science informed and there isn't all the voices at the table. So I, I think it's in Canada, it's a very positive thing. And it also addresses the fact that the people who produce our food need to be able to make a living and have a knowledge that the rest of us don't necessarily have as well in terms of what would work for the animal or the farming systems or not. So I think it is, is, it's very positive. Um, Yeah. It certainly has moments when you're sitting at the table with all these different voices <laughs>
0: <laughs> trying yeah, to yeah, reach I can consensus. Imagine.
1: There are tears shed here occasionally, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's a very good one.
0: So, so it's it's interesting. You raised a point that that I bring up a lot, and you and I have talked about before that that to a significant degree, consumers don't have a good understanding of how food is produced in this country. Uh, you know, it's not related to, to layers, but more than a third of Canadians can't tell you definitively that a cow has to have a calf before she gives milk, which is sort of basic mammalian biology. If we if we don't know that, then, then having a nuanced discussion about natural behaviors or or frustration or something become becomes difficult and and we see often consumers every right to do so driving initiatives without having a good understanding of of what the implications are so striking so striking a balance within the code committee is, is probably a positive thing i mm-hmm. think an example where we see that is is you you sent me yesterday some some information from from europe which is now after a citizen driven something like $1.4 million, uh, signatures, uh, the, the, the European union has now said that they want to go sort of cage free, which I assume goes to free run or aviary systems by mm-hmm. 2027. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll ask you, you know, before we wrap up here, is, is that achievable? Uh, is that, do you think where, where we will be in Canada in, in a few years and, and is it the right thing to do?
1: I, I don't know. Um, you know, it was at 2011, 2012. There was an EU directive that was passed in, I think, 1999 that banned conventional battery cages and allowed for enriched systems and, and, and cage-free. So now every farmer in Europe, or more, the majority of them, have transitioned over to these new systems. And that was adopted like 2011, 2012. And there's still maybe 50% of eggs produced in Europe around that. And and in particular, in the UK, it's about 50% in enriched systems. So now, with um, a citizen's initiative to end the cage age, um, the farmers would be asked to... So all the farmers who are in enriched systems would be asked to overhaul those systems again, even though I think that the standard barn... Um, and equipment lasts, say, twenty years ish. Yeah. And so it would be a huge economic burden. But the EU directive for laying hens was based that was science informed, and we're so we're pretty much where that was when they passed the EU directive. We've got some increased standards, I think, within within how those systems are designed compared to Europe. I mean, that'll be a huge economic burden, and 1.4 million, now those are, that, that's the citizens, that's the signatures for all of the European Union, that's a pretty small fraction of the population. And so some individual member states have, like the Netherlands, um, have already made the decision, Germany as well, not to use enriched systems, they're already at total cage-free. It, it certainly is going to be problematic for the farmers, I'm sure, who have already spent um, a lot of money on the new systems um, and then 10 years later they're you know 15 years later they're going to be asked to change again i don't know if it's feasible that deadline is feasible because we're talking about changing all whole, whole, whole new barns so there's that's housing for millions and millions of hens that would need to be changed over
0: one of the big challenges here is that investment horizon is is, is we can't change standards significantly every two, three, four, five years, because we are making 20 and 30 year investments on these farms. And, and that's, I expect one of the tensions even at the, at the codes table is where do we set the standard and, and when do we change the standard? And and I think I'm hearing that exactly from you as one of the challenges in Europe as well. Yeah.
1: And, and right now in the U S with, there are a lot of, um, pledges from grocers and restaurants for cage-free as well, and trying to rehouse, you know, millions of hens, just getting the loans and getting the equipment because how quickly can you manufacture the equipment and have it installed? And so there are time lags. And so <clears throat> some voices say, oh, that isn't fast enough, but, but without the understanding of how complex and how much money it actually costs to change over.
0: So, if my last question then, and then I'll give you a chance to say, well, Mike, you should have asked me this one, but my my last question is, if you were the animal welfare dictator, the Czar of animal in 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 Canada and and we didn't have a codes process, or if you got parachuted into Europe, what would you do would you would you do something like the codes practice, which provides some flexibility and then let the market sort of choose? which individual systems work for how much, or or do you think we should have sort of absolutes uh, and consistent for everybody?
1: Oh, Mike, as an animal welfare scientist in Canada, I've been trained to say to only talk about what I know is, and I'm not allowed <laughs> to say what you should do. <laughs> So so as scientists we provide the information to say well we know this has this effect and that has that effect and it's and it's for the rest of the the broader community and society as a whole to make the decision as to what we should do.
0: Okay. Okay, well that's uh, <laughs> I I appreciate that and I expect that is a, a lesson learned from uh, many uh, many years of being in the in in the position you're in. So I won't push you on that. So Thanks, Tina. That was, that was awesome. I learned a bunch. I think provided some excellent context around what some of those differences were. And these choices aren't always perfectly clear, right? We, we, right. You know It depends on, on what our objectives are. I'm going to give you a chance for a last word here. Is there anything you want to sort of finish with or anything I should have asked you and I didn't?
1: Probably. Well, why do these systems cost more? Okay, so some of the economic implications, I mean, those are also extremely important for consumers as well as for producers. And so, cost of production does come into it because these free run systems, you know, they have a much higher cost of production and they're also probably less environmentally friendly. Eggs are one of the greenest animal proteins that we have. So, in the grand scheme of things, eggs are going to be, you know, pretty environmentally friendly regardless. However, when we go into a system where there's more energy that goes into it, the birds have more space, they use more feed, there's environmental implications as well as economic implications in those. And so those are things that some people may also, so now just waiting, you know, we've got our values and what we, what we, place weight on in terms of animal welfare measures but also oh the earth or the hen earth or the hen so so there's other things that are trade-offs that are coming into these as well and can i afford to feed my family and so um so it's pretty complex and so that's why i think offering choices is a good thing yep um not everyone feels that way
0: yep perfect okay Thanks, Tina. That was great uh, and uh, hope you stay safe and well. Thank you. You too, Mike. That wraps up another episode of the Food Focus podcast. We very much appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you just discovered Food Focus, you can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review. It helps others find us. Before we go, I want to thank my producer, Zach, for his hard work in making each episode sound good and for his original music that helps us transition. He does the hard work and we get to have all of the fun. Thanks. Have a great day.